Second Samuel chapter 20 is where we left off. We'll pick up tonight. Now, Heavenly Father, we just ask your blessing on our study tonight. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and that the lesson in the chapter would touch us and change us. And we could put these truths into practice and be blessed and be doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as they say, when it rains, it pours, right? And by that, we mean when trouble comes, there's uh, usually a season where it's one thing after another. It's just as one fire goes out, uh, yet another one uh, sparks to life. Or just as you seal one leak in the roof, another one springs up. Uh, David's last years are kind of like that, and sadly, it's partly his own doing. Uh, Please notice with me that things are never really the same for King David after the whole Bathsheba affair. It's never the same. Some things, you know, you can be totally forgiven of, uh, but cannot be fixed. And that we see lived out in David's life, fully forgiven, But that season of rebellion really made his later years more difficult, more painful, way more complicated than necessary. Warren Wiersbe said this, how painful the consequences of forgiven sin. So a friendly reminder, the next time you're thinking about a walk on the wild side or embracing a midlife crisis, Uh, Think of David and his closing chapters of his life. The vision in his family and in the nation and the congregation of Israel. Chaos, pain, and suffering to many, many people. Uh, And it doesn't mean that the wrongdoers in these chapters are not responsible. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 says everybody's responsible for their own sin. You see, but it does mean that some of these troublemakers and some of these problems are there because David invited them in. He left the door unlocked, and in they came. And so uh, the country's divided. So just to give you a context of where we are between north and south, and I have a picture of the d- division here. Maybe you can hit the lights, Mike, just for a second. And we, we've seen this. Uh, the north is made up, it's called Israel, It's made up of the 10 states, right? And the southern is just really Judah. Uh, Simeon is uh, absorbed in there, but it's really just basically Judah. And so uh, the treasonous son Absalom has led really both of these kingdoms united in their rebellion against King David and were were both kingdoms pro-Absalom. But after Absalom was killed, and his attempt to reign as king failed, then it was time to kiss and make up with David, and the south was the first to uh, reach out to uh, David's family to uh, repent and to come around, and Judah will come out to help King David and his men come back across the Jordan. So the second slide will show where they're at. They're in Mahanaim. David fled there. Right? And they did their fighting in that forest where the arrow's pointing up. That's where Absalom died. So David needs to come back with his men all the way across the Jordan again and back, just go backwards from the arrow all the way back to Jerusalem. And so the question has been in the last chapter, uh, which 
uh, group, the northern or the southern, were going to be the first to reach David and his men to bring them back over the Jordan and help them because they needed help in getting back all the way to the palace and back to Jerusalem. Well, that was the big deal in chapter 19 of them. Thank you for that slide. Uh, it, the, 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 nations, the nation is divided, and so chapter 19 closed out with that divided nation. Uh, another quote from another commentator, a crisis will bring out the best in some people and the worst in others. So chapter 19, David is making his way from Mahanaim, and Judah is the first to reach and Judah, the southern state, because they're related to David, really uh, are really tight with him, and they made it there first. And, and how the chapter closed out is, is that the south came first to help the king over, and then the north, the ten tribes, show up a little bit late. They can still help if they wanted to, but they're really, really mad because they didn't get to, to help first. And so they're jealous. And so it started out, you'll remember, they, they come onto the scene, Israel, the northern tribes, they come on and they say, you've kidnapped the king, man. Uh, why, why did you leave us out? You guys want to be the big heroes. Who do you guys from Judah think you are? And then the south, Judah says back to them, well, snooze you lose. Uh, we're related to the king. You're not. Bye-bye. And then the north says back to them, well, we're bigger than you. We're, we're, we're 10 states. You're like one and a half little state. All right, we have a greater investment and share in the king than you tiny little Judahville does. And then Judah answers back in just shouting match. And, the, and your text says, the men of Judah's, the, the words from Judah were more fierce and more harsh. So really how it ended now we pick up, they're on their way back, but both Judah and the north are fighting over who's more loyal to King David. And we're about to find out who really is loyal and who's just talking and who's just blowing some hot air, all right? Now that uh, reading verses one and two from the NIV. <clears throat> oh, happiness, <laughs> verse number one. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David, so the north, okay, ten states, all the guys who just said, oh, we are so loyal. All right, so all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri, but the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. All right, so let's pause there. Uh, enter the troublemaker, and there always seems to be one. Sheba now is going to lead this rebellion. Sheba sounds like a girl's name, but it is actually a guy's name here. Uh, now, when there's a lot of flammable materials in one place, it only takes one match to set the whole thing off into a very nasty explosion. Uh, volatile situations, you know, even in a marriage or relationship or in a company or in a church. When things are tender or stressed out, it really only takes one word 
to bring the whole thing into a frenzied chaos. Well, tensions are high here. I mean, they just, they just had this war. Uh, 20,000 guys died in the war. So things are pretty raw. And so they're fighting back and forth. They're yelling back and forth. And so, it, so the match is going to be Sheba, the troublemaker. Now, first of all, the Holy Spirit wants you to know a little bit about Sheba. Uh, he's not a nice guy. Uh, it says in the Hebrew, uh, he's a son of Belial, which is the son of the devil. So, you know, he's not a good guy. Now, he, the idiom here really means worthless. The ESV has worthless, the NIV troublemaker, obviously. But the nuance here is scoundrel, divider, slanderer, uh, somebody who's very stuck on themselves or proud, and all of that goes to make a troublemaker. I think that's the best way to put it. Now, uh, this troublemaker is inspired from below, uh, like all troublemakers are. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but it's the spirit behind the troublemaker that is the real problem. And so the Holy Spirit really goes to unusual lengths to describe this guy as uh, using his, his full name, Sheba, son of Bikri. Now, it's, it's very unusual. Eight times in the chapter, his full title. And commentators say the Holy Spirit is doing this for a reason. In verses 1, 2, 6, 7, 10, 13, 21, and 22, it's Sheba, son of Bikri. The word Bikri, there's a little play on words going on, and the Holy Spirit wants to describe this guy further than a son of the devil. But... Bikra is camel, but it's, it, it is used in a, a pejorative way, in a, in a negative way. Like in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, the Lord insults Israel as a wandering she-camel that's rebellious and doesn't listen and, and is not submissive. And so this guy really, here's the, the deal, he's a beast, He's a brute beast. He's an animal. He's ruled by passions. He gets a thought. He gets an emotion. He gets rage. He just, he just is like an animal that way. You know, when you're driven by your own passions without the constraints of conscience or moral law or love, the rule of love, then we really act like animals. You know, there was an article this week. I don't know if you read it or saw it by Helen Croydon entitled, it was everywhere, all over every news agency. Monogamy is not natural in the animal kingdom. Therefore, we shouldn't expect it with us because we are animals. That monogamy is an outdated thing because we are animals and you don't see monogamy in nature. So, you know, the big question is maybe we should get all of our cues from the animals. And then if that were the case, then Helen Croydon would be in a lot of problem, trouble right now. I mean, atheists say, you know, we're, we're, we're very much animals. And the thing is, is that we can behave like animals when we don't acknowledge the Lord, but we are much more than animals. But this guy really is acting like one. Commentators say that his motivation is he wants to lead, he wants the attention, he's jealous. Um, he is from Saul's tribe, so there's some resentment there because Saul was uh, lost the dynasty. Uh, so even though Sheba wants 
number one position. He wants to be king, but you don't hear about it yet. First, they say he needs to divide, and then he will conquer. Notice his three-pronged attack in your text. He grabs the mic and notices his words. Uh, they're set off like prose in your text. Do you see that? It, it looks like a poem. It's because it's a chant. It's a, a rallying cry. It's a catchphrase, uh, kind of uniting rebels, right? So in other words, it's kind of like question authority, or I was born okay the first time, or coexist. So it's rallying cries that kind of uh, cause unbelievers to come together. So the three Ds, the three stabs in the chant, goes like this. We have no Sharon David that denies authority. So in other words, who made him the boss of us anyway? Uh, the answer to that, the Lord did. First Samuel 16, verse 1. Uh, we don't have to come under this man. Who needs him and his little tribe of Judites? All right. Number two, uh, he calls him son of Jesse. That's just a, a, a way to devalue him because he's pointing out this guy's blue collar, man. He's got no royal blood. His family was poor. They're nobodies. He was out in a sheep pen. Number two, so the insult there. Number three, every man to his own house. Uh, the, the third D word would be divides. He likes to, a troublemaker divides and draws men away with him. They never leave alone. They never do. They always have to take a little bit of others with them. Here's a quote. Just like the congregation of Israel, the church has had its fair share of Sheba's. So here we go again. We're in the middle of a civil war now. Sheba's words, his little slogan, resonates with the north, the ten tribes, and they desert David, and tiny Judah remains loyal to their king. You know, unbelievable, after all of that shouting and all of that boasting, we're the loyal ones. We love David more than you do. Uh, it reminds me of Passion Week. On Sunday, the crowds, Hosanna, singing his praises, and palm branches, and taking off their jackets and their coats, and letting the donkey and letting Jesus ride over them. And in five days, it goes from singing his praises to uh, commanding that he be crucified and calling for his execution. So thanks to one voice, one voice, this, this wild camel, this troublemaker, David has another civil war on his hands. One voice, civil war. So Israel boasted about their loyal devotion in big claims, but Judah showed it by how they stuck to David in big ways. So verse 2, Judah stayed with their king all the way to Jerusalem. That's nice. Now David's back in the palace. All right, so here's what happens. We're going to just take verse 3 and talk a little bit about it because it needs a little explanation. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. So number two I would call repentance. There's a little repentance going on here. Just a quick pause and we'll move on. But a little holy fire burns away stuff in our lives that don't belong. And so David has been through hell and back. 
Uh, he comes back to the palace. There's nothing like a little trouble to help clean up your spiritual life. And these 10 concubines, concubines, almost said porcupines, but okay. <laughs> these 10 are like wives, you know, but they're not. And he really shouldn't have had them. Uh, it was kind of the custom of the Middle East when a royalty, that's kind of what they did, uh, but it wasn't pleasing to God. And so uh, he left the 10 in the palace when he was fleeing from Absalom. Nobody was in the palace but those 10. And Absalom came, took the throne, and then violated his father's wives. And so now David's back, and there they are. So they need special attention and special care. And, and, he, and, and he puts a guard there for himself. It's not, it's not appropriate for him to have concubines. Uh, it wasn't before, and now it's even more so now. And I, commentators say he's really making an effort to say, you know what, after what I've been through, and I'm still in chaos right now, I'm suffering and reeling. Why? Because of some of his sexual promiscuity. He's not, he's not in the mood to have a big harem anymore because it's that apartment in his life that really opened the door to all the chaos to begin with. So he comes home. It, it, it's not appropriate for them to move on in their lives. They've been violated. No, they're Jewish men. It wouldn't work. So there's only one option is to take care of them and keep himself away from them. And so that's what's really going on there. Uh, it's sad. It's sad because Absalom's sin is, is responsible for really ruining their lives. And so is David's. But that's what happens when we're self-absorbed and live like animals, when we're not monogamous the way God made us. When we were created, we were created husband and wife. That's how we were created. He, he brought the woman, and the word is wife. Male and female, he created them, and the two became one. That's God's plan. Animals don't have that plan, but human beings do. And when humans want to act like the animals, then you have this chaos. Amen? So the day of large harems is over for David, and now we're going to move on. Now, follow carefully. David has settled the matter at home. Now, what about the wild camel? You know, that's the problem. He's leading the uprising, right, Sheba? Okay, we're going to get to that, but just follow closely. It gets a little tricky here. Then the king said to Amasa, Joab's replacement, all right, Joab got demoted. The new guy is Amasa. Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. All right, so Amasa's the new commander-in-chief. Joab has been demoted, but he's still in the mix. David said to Abishai, who's Joab's brother, who would be next in command. Now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men, pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men, see, so you see Joab's still fighting, but he's not the commander. And the Kerithites and the Pelethites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Amashai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the wild camel man. That's what son of Bichri means. <laughs> While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Okay, so he shows up late, but he's supposedly the commander-in-chief. All right, so watch what happens. Joab was wearing his military 
tunic. In other words, he didn't step down. He's still fighting. And strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of the sheath. Whoops. Yeah, right. Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Well, praise the Lord. Here we are. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba. Now one of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. All right, so Joab's got his job back. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba. All right, so number three. Now, see if this is clever enough for you, all right? Getting Amasa out of the way. It was Amasa. All right, never mind. Number three, Joab strikes again. Now, Let's remember this. Joab got demoted for a lot of reasons, but probably number one is that he killed the king's son in defiance of the king's order not to do so. And so David eventually finds out that it was him who killed Absalom. And, and you know, it's the last straw. So in a very shrewd move, David fires uh, Joab and replaces him with Absalom's commander-in-chief Amasa as a reaching out to the north and saying, look, I'm not that mad. I'm going to hire your leader who was responsible for all the deaths on Judah's side. So he's really, David's really reaching out and saying, I'm going to heal this rift between north and south by hiring as my general Amasa, who's another cousin, by the way. Amasa, Joab, Abishai, they're all generals. And they're all related. Joab and Abishai are brothers, and their cousin is Amasa. All right? I just threw that in for free. All right. Now, this Joab, man, is he not an interesting character? He's a real strange mix. Nobody knows what to think of him. Open a book. You'll find good, bad. Uh, He's a mix of hero. He's courageous. He's a villain. He's bad. He's good. He's scheming. He's smart. He's insecure. And he has faith, or so it seems. Is he going to be in heaven? It's divided. Nobody knows. He's one of those guys. It's like, hope so. (laughs) You know, but, you know, there's enough evidence on both sides for to make a case there. So apparently Amasa was a good political move, but he's not a very good soldier. And, and, And there are three things against him. He's kind of an inept general. For one, He lost the war with Absalom, and he had a larger army. Number two, uh, he can't seem to muster the troops of Judah in time. David grows patient, and impatient, I should say, and David is wondering, where is he? What's taking him so long? Has he defected? Number three, he couldn't see or sense the danger with Joab and the dagger. So he's not 
real smart when it comes to being a general. Uh, so King David, as I said, got a little nervous. So the new commander delays. He's wondering where he is. So he turns to Joab's brother, Abishai, and he says, you know what to do. Take the special forces of Judah and go after that wild man who's going to cause us more trouble than Absalom. And so now you've heard of Little Rock, right? Well, this is a place called Big Rock. And when they get to that place, the replacement guy who nobody knew where he was. That's why Abishai and Joab are now leading Judah. Amasa, who's the appointed commander-in-chief, now shows up, their cousin. And so cousin Joab sees him and then comes forward, your text says, and drops his dagger. He picks it up with the left. He, in the Hebrew, seizes the beard. And it was a friendly gesture to take the beard. I wouldn't say seizing the beard was a friendly gesture. But to take the beard and do that Middle Eastern kiss on the cheek. But he planted a Judas kiss at the same time he planted the dagger in his cousin's belly for various reasons. Number one, he probably suspected, he suspects everybody, uh, Joab. Uh, He's jealous. He probably blames this guy. You took my job. You know, uh, Joab hates him. You know, he's also, Amasa was responsible for a lot of Joab's men dying. And now he's going to be commander over Joab? Joab says, I don't think so. And so he, he's going to do away. Whoops, my dagger accidentally falls. And hey, bro, in the Hebrew, it says, good, are you in good health? Uh, the answer, no, not anymore. I used to be five seconds ago. But now I'm not. Amasa's slain body is a fitting place for another guy to say, okay, look, the new appointed commander-in-chief's dead. We got Joab, our old commander-in-chief. Everybody for Joab? Let's go. Everybody for David? Let's go. Very interesting little additional information here that seems like, why would you tell us this? Well, because it's kind of the way things go. The guys come up and they see Amasa in the middle of the road, and they stop. They're hindered. They have to think. This is a bad thing. You just killed him? He's your cousin. You know, David appointed him. He's our commander-in-chief. So it's slowing things down because guys are realizing something immoral went on here to gain the vote or the power or the whatever it is you want in your agenda. And so when people figure out that something immoral went down, then they're, they're given pause to reflect. And so that's especially true in politics. I think people who want power, uh, something morally goes wrong. Uh, it takes place to persuade people or to, to do something or to uh, go somewhere to side with someone or to vote a certain way. And then when uh, they realize, when folks realize what was done, then they think about it twice before pledging allegiance. So that's, that's why there are scandals and cover-ups. Because when people come upon the Amasa in the road and go, now, wait a second, you want us to vote this way now? You did this? Oh, no, no, no. So what has to happen is they have to take Amasa away, covered over. Now everybody's just free to follow Joab because nobody sees what happened over there. And that's a little commentary there for the way human beings are. Now to 
this part here. Uh, let's finish up. Uh, Joab now, Abishai, the 600 special forces, they're ready to go get this guy Sheba and they're going to hunt him down. Verses 14 through 22, we'll finish up. Sheba passed through. Now Sheba's running. He's trying to get people to join him. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth, Ma'akah, and through the entire region of the Bichrites. You know who they are. They're the original camels. <laughs> That's where he comes from, all right? That's mom and dad camel and all the brothers, and yeah, who gathered together and followed him. Okay, so that's where he's going to get some support at least. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel Beth Maacah. So it's behind a, a wall, a fortified city. They built a siege ramp up to the city, and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her and she asked, are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. <laughs> I love that line. She continued, you know, long ago they used to say, get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are peaceful and faithful in Israel. You're trying to destroy a city that's a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy? That's not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. <laughs> wow. Then the woman went to all the people with Holy Spirit narrating with her wise advice. And they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab for the touchdown. <laughs> so he sounded, I'm sorry. What do you do with that? So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king, wow, in Jerusalem. Now, the voice of wisdom, number four. Wisdom prevails here. And it's interesting, because Proverbs always has the voice of wisdom as a woman, you know. Um, now, Sheba's going to lose his head here. It's the end of his rebellion. Now, notice first his big effort to get people to join in. Uh, it fails. He's trying to drum up support. Now, watch. He, he goes all the way. He goes all the way to the tip top. That's as top as Israel goes, trying to garner support. And he, and he finally gets to Dan. He's a few miles west of Dan. You can't go any further because you'll be not in Israel anymore. And so this guy really is trying. And they're chasing him all the way to Dan, the northern part. And he gets to a place called Abel Beth Ma'akah. And it, it, it's a fortified city. So he's hiding within the city. And so Joab, that's not a problem for Joab. Joab says, let's build a siege ramp. So they build like a ramp to get up and over the wall. Or they can just bring the whole wall down with that ramp. And so Joab is no slacker. He doesn't like to lose. He's loyal to David. That's another one of those 
you know, go figure things about him. The soldiers are busy. The wall's being pounded. Uh, the siege ramp's getting higher and higher. And then comes an unusual sound for warfare. Thank you for that picture, by the way. An unusual sound of a woman's voice, sweet, feminine voice calling out from maybe the top of the wall. Verse 16, I picture her waving a scarf or something. She's trying to get their attention. While, verse 16 says this, while they are battering the wall to bring it down, she calls to Joab. Now, here's a paraphrase, all right? Here's what I picture going on. Hey, hey, listen, listen to me. I want to talk to Joab right away. And they go to Joab. Hey, some lady's calling from the top of the wall. She wants to talk to you. So he comes over. She says, are you Joab? He says, I am. I'd like to have a word with you as your servant. Please listen. Start speaking, says Joab. Now, did you know this place, this very city, used to have a nickname? Do you want to know what the nickname was, Joab? It was nicknamed Peaceful Negotiations. That's what they used to call this place. When people had a dispute, do you know where they would go? They'd come to our city, into this place. And do you know what? We would solve it. And they would go away with peace. We were like the mom, nurturing all the little children fighting out there. And now you want to kill the mom of Israel. And Job's like, no, I don't. <laughs> Seriously, I, I really don't want to do that. And uh, there's no way on earth I'd ever do something like that. We don't have a beef with you in your city. Only some troublemaker who's hiding out there. He's leading an uprising against the king, against David. If you guys hand him over, everything will be just fine and we'll go peacefully on our way. And the woman says, give me a few minutes and I'll toss the scoundrel's head over the wall. I'll be right back. <clears throat> So I love this. It says, in her wisdom, she goes to the town elders and she says, you listen up. It's us or some guy with a girl's name. Now, that was funny and you better admit it. All right, listen. Take his head off and toss it over and we'll all be saved. So they tossed it to Joab. That's what it says. They said, hey, Joab. <laughs> he looks up and <laughs> they toss a guy's head. That's the kind of guy Joab is. He's like, yeah, throw it down. And they, he, does he catch it? I think he does. I think he looks at it and goes, yeah, who's got the last laugh now? You know, and I could just see him wiggling his jaw a little bit. Whatever. I don't know. I think these guys are crazy. Well, they had to confirm, didn't they? They had to confirm, is that just anybody's head or is that the guy? It's like, I don't know, do you recognize him? It's like, I like to try to picture things in my head. Really, the real thing is what I thought of when I read this is, come, come, Lord Jesus, come. The Prince of Peace, we really need you. So this guy, John Trapp, he's a commentator, was 1600s. He said the most insightful thing about this bizarre scene. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. Here's the spiritual application from Sheba, his rebellion, and his refuge in the city of Abel. He's writing in the 1600s. Now, around every human heart is a wall, 
an enclosed city with fortified walls. Every sin is a traitor who lurks within those walls. God calls out in wisdom for Sheba's head. He has no quarrel with us or our day-to-day livelihoods, but he wants us to hand over the scoundrel, the rebel, or the battering ram will continue until God gets the traitor within. If we love the traitor more than our own welfare, then we will justly bear the foolish consequences of God's siege ramp in our lives. Ouch. 1600s. I shot an arrow from the 1600s, went straight into my heart. What traitors, what Shivas, are finding refuge in the nooks and crannies and the hiding places of our hearts? And the sweet voice of wisdom is give that head up or I'm coming in for it or I'll turn up the heat. And then I have to to batter and batter and batter until, okay, you can have him or her, whichever the case may be. Is it worth giving Arsheba asylum to risk God turning up the heat in our lives until we toss their heads over the walls of our hearts. God just loves us, because Sheba's bad. We think Sheba's okay, you know. We tolerate our Shivas. We have our old darling little sins that we give refuge to, but they're very bad. They're murderous and they're traitorous to him and harmful to us and our family. So God is so faithful. You know, I would rather wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I just want to just hear some heads, you know, just throw out uh, this problem and this, this guy and this guy, right? Then, then that way I've confessed and I've turned and I've repented and I've, I've searched with the power of the word of God and the Holy Spirit looking for these little traitors, this little gossip, a little slander, a little pride, a little lust, all those little Shebas. Lord, here you go. And notice zero tolerance. It's wisdom. She has wisdom. Take the head off. But don't you just take the butter knife. Oh, Sheba. Oh, you know, just stop. You know, no, that doesn't work. That's the way we like to do it. But it's supposed to be like completely zero tolerance. Take the head completely clean off. What? There's a joy in not sinning. There's a greater joy in not sinning than in sinning. You've got to learn a little bit of that. Well, it boils down to it's them or us, and that's kind of how it is. Verses 23 through 26, David's second administration there. You can read it. Uh, Joab's back officially, but you know what? (laughs) On David's deathbed, he's going to uh, make sure that Joab gets justice for murdering Amasa, and he's going to order Solomon to execute Joab. I don't want to spoil First Kings, which is coming up, but something happens and it's not good for Joab. All right, moving on. Uh, David's success, he's a good team player. Look, at, look, he's got people working with him and uh, even he has his own chaplain. That priest is kind of like his devotional guider. It's his little chaplain. So somebody wrote, if David, a man after God's own heart, needs devotional help, then we should not think ourselves above it. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the lesson this chapter brings to our hearts tonight. And you had something to say to all of us. Uh, We thank you for being a living God, 
who's alive at work in our hearts and our lives and in the midst of your people here tonight. Just shine your spotlight, Lord. We open the city gates and ask you to turn the lights on in there and help us to, with the power of the Holy Spirit, do some executions and give you what you're looking for, the traitors, so that we could be just devoted to you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.